For those of you that weren't here last week, we begin our sermon series on spiritual warfare and the lies that we believe. Bob laid out the reality of spiritual warfare in our lives and addressed some of the common misconceptions that people have of Satan, our enemy. And this is a pretty heavy topic to explore. There's no doubt about that. And I know our enemy is not happy with us doing this sermon series. He would much rather prefer to go unnoticed, kind of working behind the curtain while he methodically steals our joy and tries to destroy our life. And last week we learned, Bob shared, that the 2009 research study done by Barna that interviewed thousands of Christians and 60% of self-professing Christians interviewed thought that the devil was just a symbol of evil, that he wasn't even a real being. Over half of Christians interviewed in the U.S. didn't even believe the devil was real. And that is a serious problem in the church. And so not only do we at Wellspring want you guys to be aware of the fact that we have an enemy, but we want to help you guys know his ways and methods so that you can stand your ground against him. So today we're going to continue to dive deeper into this topic of spiritual warfare by specifically addressing Satan's mission in our world. And growing up in a Christian home and going to a Christian school, I wasn't taught much about spiritual warfare. The truths that I heard had much more to do with God's love for me, his grace for me, his forgiveness for me. Nobody really told me much that I was in a battle every day with someone who hates me and wants to destroy my life. And I knew of stories in the New Testament of people being demon-possessed, But I thought stuff like that only happened to crazy people. Surely no one in my life could ever be demon-possessed or ever even attacked by a demon. Surely that type of stuff could never happen to me. But all that changed when I turned 13. I've shared this story before. When I was 13, I went through a two-week period in my life where I experienced severe spiritual warfare, specifically dealing with my mind. I remember it very clearly. I was playing basketball in my driveway on the same street I live on now with my wife, Jennifer Lane, and a thought popped into my head that said, you're not a Christian, you didn't say the right words when you prayed, and now you're going to hell. That thought was pretty dark and morbid, so I tried to just ignore it and think about Michael Jordan or something fun at the time, but it kept coming back as I'm sitting there in the driveway, and I tried to fight it off, and it kept coming back stronger and stronger and stronger until it stuck. And by that night, I honestly believed that I was going to hell and that there was nothing that God himself could even do about it. And that obsessive thought became such a part of me that it filled me with depression and fear and anxiety. When you honestly believe that you're going to hell, you don't have much of a reason to live. I remember one day I was so depressed, I literally had to skip school because I didn't have the strength to even get up off of the couch. I thought there was no hope. My parents put me in touch with tons of teachers and counselors to meet with me to try to convince me that I was a Christian, that I wasn't going to hell. I remember going to all kinds of churches and meeting with pastors. Counselors came to my house 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night and met with me to convince me, dude, you're 13, like, you're not going to hell. You believe in Jesus. Finally, (laughs) I had a breakthrough moment after putting my parents through a really rough two weeks, knowing that this wasn't normal for a 13-year-old kid to be dealing with something like this. 
I had a breakthrough moment and God set me free and just showed me through his word and instilled in my heart that my salvation and my eternal destiny was because of his grace. It wasn't because I said a specific set of words when I prayed. He set me free from believing that lie. And that experience awakened me to the reality of Satan and his spiritual forces of evil. Whether we're aware of it or not, we have an enemy. And he's been tempting us since the beginning of time. And if you look around, we kind of got some trees up here for decoration. And, you know, some of that is because it's springtime, right? Trees are starting to bloom and they're beautiful. And so we wanted to be a part of that. But we also wanted to give you guys some imagery. We wanted to give you guys something visual that you could look upon and think about. Because Satan's lies began with a tree. His lies began with a tree. And understanding Satan's original lie helps us better understand all of the lies that he tries to feed us every day. He's full of evil and wants nothing good to happen to us. So we're going to examine that original lie for a little bit. So open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. It should be page 3 if you're using a pew Bible. This is the story of the first human beings, Adam and Eve, being tempted by Satan. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1, the fall. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So God put Adam and Eve in the middle of the Garden of Eden. He said they can eat fruit, eat from any tree except the one in the middle. And it was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And putting that tree in the middle of the garden gave Adam and Eve the the ability to choose to either obey God 
or disobey God. And immediately after Eve was formed, I literally think it's two verses, if you look in your Bible, two verses after she was created, here comes Satan, wasting no time to destroy her her life. He comes taking on the form of a serpent, and in verse 1, if you look at it, he says, Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice he didn't deny what God said. He doesn't deny what God said. Instead, he's mocking. He mocks what God said. He's trying to get them to believe that God's request was ridiculous. The serpent's goal was to change Adam and Eve's attitude about what God said. And so this is huge. So the first sin of mankind doesn't begin with an action. The first sin of mankind doesn't begin with an action. It begins with a change in the attitude of heart. And once a change in the attitude of heart takes place, Satan throws out a lie to Eve that gets her mind racing. It gets her mind going 100 miles an hour. He says to her, you will not certainly die if you eat of this tree. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Why wouldn't you want that? Satan is essentially telling Eve that if she doesn't eat from this tree, then she would be missing out on the good life. That she would not be living up to all that she could be. That she'd be missing out on a thriving and incredible life. The serpent is saying, don't let God hold you back. Just take a little bite. It's not going to hurt you. And referring to this section, Pastor Tim Keller had this to say. He said, what's so extremely interesting to see here is that Satan knows what is really crucial to destroy. He doesn't deny the existence of God. He doesn't deny the law of God or the will of God or the holiness of God. He denies the goodness of God. He denies the goodness and the love and the grace and the goodwill of God behind all of those decrees. He says, if you obey God, you can't trust his goodwill. You're going to have to take your life into your own hands. And that lie went in, and that lie is in my heart, and that lie is in your heart. The fact that Satan has destroyed our trust in the love of God is beneath everything else. The fact that Satan has destroyed our trust in the love of God is beneath everything else. And that lack of trust in God's love and goodness plays itself out in our lives every single day. We are tempted in more ways than we're even aware of. We know the Bible tells us not to lust, right? Don't lust after a woman or a man that is not yours. But man, it sure would feel good if we did, right? We know the Bible says be generous with your money. Give it away. Be extremely generous with what I've been giving you. It's not yours anyway. But we think, man, it'd be a lot more enjoyable to spend it on ourselves. We know the Bible says to not get revenge on your enemies. But it feels good to get even sometimes, doesn't it? Every day, we're tempted. And we're tempted because we don't trust God's love for us. We trust Him at times, no doubt. We trust Him at times, but we're just like Adam and Eve. We live with this little false sense of belief that if we obey God, then somehow we're going to be missing out on an exciting life or that we'll be unhappy If we truly trusted 
in God's love and goodness, we wouldn't desire anything other than Jesus Christ because our complete satisfaction will be found in him. If we truly trusted God's goodness, we would desire nothing other than Jesus because our complete satisfaction would be found in him. Let's fast forward now several thousand years and take a look at Satan's nature and mission from some of the writers of the New Testament. Here's what they had to say about Satan. This first one is Jesus speaking, actually calling out a group of people. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. First Peter says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith. In John 10.10, 10, the first part, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So Satan is a murderer. There's no truth in him. Every time he speaks, it's a lie because he's the father of lies. He prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And he wants to steal, kill, and destroy our identity as God's beloved children. We have an enemy. If you don't believe it, too bad. He is out to get you. We have an enemy. You can ignore it or try to disregard it, but he is out to get you. We don't have to live in fear because of Christ in us, but we need to be wise about who he is and his tactics and his mission so that we can guard our hearts against him. I came across a piece of writing that I want to share with you guys um, that gives a unique perspective on this topic of spiritual warfare and some of Satan's tactics. The author is unknown, um, but it was definitely inspired by C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. I actually read this from a sermon a couple years ago, and it's so good, I'm going to share it again, so too bad if you've heard it many times. It's written from the perspective of a conversation taking place between Satan, the head demon, and his troops, his demons, and he's rallying his troops kind of early in the morning and gives them the mission of distracting the Christians from maintaining that vital connection to Christ throughout their day. Here's the dialogue. This is what I want you to do, said the devil. Distract them from gaining hold of their Savior and maintaining that vital connection throughout their day. How shall we do this, his demon shouted. Keep them busy in the non-essentials of life and invent innumerable schemes to occupy their minds, he answered. Tempt them to spend, 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 and borrow, borrow, borrow. Persuade the wives to go to work for long hours And the husbands to work six to seven days each week, 10 to 12 hours a day, so that they can afford their empty lifestyles. Keep them from spending time with their children. As their families fragment, soon their homes will offer no escape from the pressures of work. Overstimulate their minds so that they cannot hear that still, small voice. Entice them to play the radio whenever they drive, to keep the TV and CDs and computers going constantly in their home. This will jam their minds and break that union with Christ. Even in their recreation, let them be excessive. Have them return from their recreation exhausted. 
Keep them too busy to go out in nature and reflect on God's creation. Keep them busy, busy, busy. Crowd their lives with so many good causes that they have no time to seek power from Jesus. Soon they will be working in their own strength, sacrificing the health and family for the good of the cause. Anyone relate to that? Hmm. One of his biggest tactics is to keep us busy. I would almost say that might be the biggest one in the United States. He's content with us staying busy, doing good things, even church things, as long as it distracts us from having a connection to Christ. He wants our schedules to be so maxed out that we don't even have three minutes, five minutes, to pray and be with Jesus. Because it's in those moments where we start relying on our own strength to get through life, our own strength to get through the day. And when we get to that point, He's won the battle that day. And if busyness isn't your downfall, you better believe he will try something else. He will attack you from every angle possible until he finds what sticks for you. For how you're wired, your DNA, your personality, he'll find what sticks. Thomas Adams had this to say about Satan's methods. Satan, like a fisher, baits his hook according to the appetite of of the fish. Keep that up there for a second. We are the fish. Satan, like a fisherman, baits his hook according to the appetite of the fish. And this is going to sound dark, but bear with me. Did you know that the enemy has been studying you since day one? I'm not trying to scare you guys, I'm being honest. He's been watching you since the day you were born. He studied you closely, and he knows what makes you tick. He knows what triggers your anger, what triggers your bitterness, what triggers your pride, your self-rejection, or your lust, or your greed. He knows the exact bait to feed you. Have you ever wondered why there's that area, there's that thing in your life that you just can't seem to find freedom in? Have you ever thought that maybe Satan picked up on it years ago and he's been specifically attacking and targeting that area in your life for as long as you can remember, and that's why you can't find freedom. If your weakness is alcohol, you better believe he will do everything in his power to put alcohol in front of you. He'll do what he can to make you run into old friends you used to party with to lead you down that road. He'll try to make you reminisce on the good times when you were numb to the pain in life through intoxication. He'll put advertisements in front of you in the newspapers and TV and bulletins tempting you just to take one little sip. Live the good life, right? Because he knows if you take that one sip, you're done. Maybe your weakness is pride. Surely nobody here, right? Maybe your weakness is pride. He will do anything in his power to get you to think that you are something special because of your talent, maybe your good looks, your job performance, your status, your grades. Because if he can get you thinking you're something special, you start thinking about yourself more and others less. The more self-obsessed you become, living as though you're the center of the universe. And if he can get you thinking about yourself and not about others, he's won the battle for that day. We've got to be aware of the bait that Satan uses to lure us into temptation. For me... The bait that he uses is anything that feeds into my self-rejection. For those of you that know me well, 
I have a pretty low self-esteem. I have all my life. I frequently beat myself up in my, in my head, feeling as though I'm not a good enough husband or pastor or friend or that I'm not living up to people's expectations of me. And when I start entertaining those thoughts and they start moving like a hamster on a wheel, it leads me to anxiety and fear and depression. And when I can get going there, when the, Satan's got me going down that path, he's won the battle for that day. So what's the bait for you? And I want to hear from you guys. What is the bait for you? There's no doubt that Satan uses all kinds of temptations to destroy us. But for most of us, there is an area that is our weak point. It's our button. That area where when you're tempted strong, typically you can't resist. You're done. Is it someone stroking your ego? Is it feeling you've got to earn your approval through your performance? Is it your self-rejection? What's the bait that Satan uses to tempt you? And why do you think he focuses on that area? Let's hear from a few of you guys, if we can be so vulnerable. What's your bait? Yes. Yeah. No, no, hers is alcohol. Yeah, growing up thinking that just numbing yourself to the pain of life, it can help you with anything. Yeah. Very good. Well, it's not good, but it's good you're aware of that. (laughs) Who else? What's the bait for you that Satan uses to attack you? I'll start calling people by name if I have to. Yes, Mr. Jewell. Sure. Pride for Steve. He gets his ego stroked very easily. It doesn't take much. He starts thinking about how special he is. That's good. Anyone else? Even during my prayers, Satan disrupts them with a thought process. He'll come in when I'm praying and tell me that I forgot to do something or I need to do this and distract me from listening to the voice of God. Yeah. What God's trying to tell me. Yeah. Busyness, for sure. I don't know about you guys. When I pray, it takes me like 30 minutes to even clear my mind before I can even focus. Yeah. Anyone else? All right. I came across a quote um, from John Eldridge that's a little humorous, but it paints a powerful picture of what we're talking about. It's kind of long, so bear with me. It gets a look somewhat funny at the bottom. You were born into a world at war. When Satan lost the battle against Michael and his angels, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. That means that right now on this earth, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of fallen angels, foul spirits, 
bent on our destruction. You have an enemy. He is trying to steal your freedom, kill your heart, destroy your life. To live in ignorance of spiritual warfare is the most naive and dangerous thing a person can do. It's like skipping through the worst part of town late at night, waving your wallet above your head. It's like walking into an Al-Qaeda training camp wearing an I Love the United States t-shirt. It's like swimming with great white sharks dressed as a wounded sea lion smeared with blood. And let me tell you, you don't escape spiritual warfare simply because you choose not to believe it exists or because you refuse to fight it. The bottom line is you are going to have to fight for your heart. Remember John 10.10. The thief is trying to steal the life God wants to give. Guys, we have an enemy that is real. And he wants to destroy our identity as God's beloved children. He wants to destroy our marriages and our families. He wants to rip this church apart. He wants to do everything he can to wipe away anything that promotes God's goodness or love in this city and throughout our world. And I know this material is heavy. It's not feel-good preaching. There's not a lot of smiles out there today. Woo! Right? I understand that. But we have to know Satan is a fallen angel who knows the Bible really well, better than us. When Jesus was in the desert, And Satan approached him. What did he use to tempt Jesus? He started quoting scripture at Jesus, God himself, and tried to twist it and manipulate it in order to deceive Jesus and lead him into sin. He knows the Bible. And our hope is that we can help you guys become aware of who he is and his mission and tactics to help you guys stand your ground when he comes at you. Next week, we'll be starting to examine specific lies that he tries to get us to believe in hopes of stealing our joy and crushing our spirits and making us question our identity as God's children. And although we have an enemy out to get us, I just feel led to say this, although we have an enemy out to get us, we also have a savior and protector who has already defeated that enemy. And we don't have to live in fear of him. Because our king is the ultimate ruler who has dominion over all things. And as we come to the communion table today, I want to give you guys a few minutes to reflect and give gratitude to God for his love and sacrifice and his power in our lives. So as you come up and take the bread and dip it into the cup, remember that the God that you serve is the ultimate king who holds the present and future in his hands And it's in him that we can rejoice and find our rest. So I'm going to pray for us, and then after a few minutes, the ushers will come, dismiss you each by row, and we'll take communion. Let's pray together. God, you are so good. Jesus, forgive us for not believing how good you are and for running to everything else other than you to find happiness and satisfaction in life. Forgive us, God. Help us to know and believe in your love and goodness and that it will completely satisfy us, God. Jesus, make us aware of our enemy and the ways that he is targeting us. This is probably new material and a new way of thinking for so many people, God. 
Help us to be wise so that we can recognize his attacks and recognize his lies so that we can stand our ground against him, God. And help us to trust in you that you are the ultimate king, God. We don't have to be afraid of anything because your power resides in us, God. And we know that you are good. And so we just come to you today, God, humbled to be your children, to be your sons and daughters, God, knowing we don't deserve anything, God, but it's all because of your grace that you have saved us, set us free from sin, and given us the victory and power over Satan, the evil foe. God, I pray that you'll hear our prayers during this time.